Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, your host, and I am coming to you from New York City, getting ready for next week's United Nations General Assembly meetings bad traffic, angry New Yorkers, uh, and coming off of a 24-hour Yom Kippur fast, which has me just vaguely conscious and contemplating eating the furniture. Joining us from Washington, D.C., we've got Ed Luz, who has been insensitively eating for the past 24 hours. Uh (laughs) Yeah, but I've been... been Whipping my back, you know, self-mortifying, because um, I'm actually a secret member of Opus Day. <laughs> You've been that, self-flagellating that, this whole time. That's great. <laughs> we love that. That's that's kind of, that's what we're all about. And as you could hear in the background, we have Rosa Brooks, who recently was on Twitter complaining about the lack of bagels in Washington. Um, and I, I have to say, Rosa, you zeroed in on one of the great weaknesses of our nation's capital, up there with complete lack of government, the decline of democracy, and the potential end of civilization. Yes, well, um, I think that's right, David. But I wasn't even zeroing in on the lack of bagels in Washington. I've heard a rumor that there are bagels in Washington, but I was just noting that in my hometown, which is now your hometown, Alexandria, Virginia, there is a particularly tragic dearth of bagels. In fact, I would go so far as to say it is a bagel desert. Uh, and I think this requires a massive and immediate public policy response. No, I think it does. I have to be quite honest with you, and this is probably more information than most people want. But, you know, I, it, I, I always felt it, there was that, that Virginia was a kind of alien environment for the Jewish American residents of Washington and Maryland. It was just not it was just not the same. Um, Washington, Maryland, there was a little more density of, 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 of bagels and cold cuts and other essentials. Um, and Virginia has got some great things going for it. Fantastic Vietnamese food, but it's missing out on uh, some of these other necessities. Well, David, have you ever considered opening David's uh, deli and bagel place in Alexandria? How about Deep State Deli? Deep State. <laughs> uh, I'm not that into the deli thing. I just want the bagels, Deep State bagels. Yeah, well, we could have bagels, but we could also have, you know, other kinds of, you know, the Deep State is good at mysteries and we could have mystery meats, you know, there are things from many. Uh. <laughs> um, all right. Um, well, look, let's let's go from from that platform. And also, by the way, in a couple of minutes, David Sanger will be joining us. Um, who is scooting from Capitol Hill to a quiet place. Uh, and within just within a few moments, he'll also be joining the conversation. 
But uh, before we started the podcast, Ed and I were talking that there has been a little bit of a, a mini spate, which is to say a couple of articles about, you know, where we go from here with foreign policy. Um, and, you know, Ed, one of the things that frankly gets under my skin every time it comes up is people saying, well, this is the Trump foreign policy or this is the problem with the Trump foreign policy. And, and I always think, well, you know, I mean, there's enough debate about the use of the word foreign because a lot of it has domestic implications. But the word policy actually implies something like it's been thought through, there are goals, there's a structure in place. And and there is no, you know, this impulse-driven, chaotic, egocentric um, uh, improvisation that Trump is doing isn't a policy to begin with, is it? No, I mean, I don't think America first or what or what Trump uh, has carried out under the rubric of America first is a foreign policy doctrine. Uh, I think it's a set of impulses, some of which, you know, have have foreign implications such as trade war with um, adversaries and allies alike, um, you know, such as um, an aversion to open borders and to the traditional globalization uh, sort of uh, promotion that you'd get from from White Houses um, before him. But uh, the the problem I have um, over and beyond Trump's impulsive and um, highly erratic foreign policy, to put it you know very politely, um, is that it's united everybody else in simply a reaction to Trump mode. And, you know, as one of the, you pointed out, there's been a couple of good thought pieces on what a good foreign policy should look like in today, in this day and age, you know, were Trump not president. Uh, one of which is by Peter Beinert and, and the others by Thomas Wright, both in the Atlantic, both very good pieces, both take different perspectives on what a good, a good stance America should be taking in this changing world. But the, the, uh, the problem with Trump is that he's really sucked up all the oxygen. So, uh, you know, uh, we're all reacting to what he does wrong. You know, what, what did he say with um, Putin when they met privately? Just how cupid can, can he be? How much cupidity can he show towards Kim Jong-un? And so forth. Um, but we're not actually looking at what... Uh, the next president should be doing, and Congress ought to be doing now, um, you know, were, were Trump not president? And that's a hugely important and largely and largely missing debate. And it's worth noting that everybody, most Democrats included, and never Trumpers, uh, are, are now, you know, quite sort of sharply to the right of Donald Trump, of the president, uh, that you know, we all united in our outrage at this at this sort of grotesque presidency are uh, essentially back to, well, interventionism is really good, um, you know, and because it's about alliances and Pax Americana. And and so we've lost all the all the important distinctions and the debates that we ought to be having to prepare for the post-Trump age. And I, I would strongly recommend both those, the Thomas Wright and Peter Beinart pieces, by the way, they've got me thinking. Um, well, that's great. We always love it when you're thinking. Yeah, it's um, a very, very brief, brief phenomenon. It's all but you know, fast. it's pretty un-American, Ed. Yeah. <laughs> I can point out good bagel outlets. I feel very American. <laughs> well, you, I will forgive you anything if you can, if you can do that. Whole Foods. Rosa, Whole Foods. Have you seen, have you seen? No. Them? Sorry. I just had to respond to that. <laughs> Sorry. Those are bread. That's not, that, those aren't bagels. Just anyway, go on, go on, David. 
No, no, terribly sorry. I, I, I realize the central thesis of what we're discussing here is, is bagels. And the reality <laughs> is that there aren't there there aren't any in Washington. Let's be clear about that. Just like there are no delis. People go, oh, there's a good deli section at the whatever. No, there are no delis in Washington. You have to go 235 miles to the north to find a deli. In any no, event. No bagels, no pickles. No good pickles. Yeah. No, it's a mess. The whole thing's a mess. And this picks up on Ed's substantive point. Rosa, have you seen either of these two articles? Uh, David, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I cannot tell a lie. Um, you I could chopped, actually. We I would chopped know. down that little cherry tree and I was so busy chopping down the little cherry tree that I have uh, not yet had occasion to read them. Yeah. It was, I was thinking, by the way, the other day that we had gone from a first president who could not tell a lie to a 45th president who can't <laughs> stop, but can't tell the truth, <laughs> it, it just, you know, which is a kind of a sad <laughs> turn of events for us. But this, Ed, this Ed you may not have been properly acculturated in the mythology of George Washington, but, but uh, I am aware of the cherry tree. I, I, I feel hurt that you would even suggest that. <laughs> um, yeah. Or Parson Weems. Do you know who Parson Weems is? No. Okay, well, you could Google that in the interim while Rosa makes up an answer to all of this. But I think Ed raises a point, regardless of whether you've seen these or not, which is to say we haven't really been having a, much of a discussion about this. It's got to be it's got to be forthcoming sometime soon. And it's quite interesting that the critique from Democrats and from never Trumpers of Trump foreign policy, particularly the critique that follows more traditional lines, actually comes at him to some degree from the right, whether yeah, it has to yeah. do with his trade policy or it has to do with more or more active intervention or it has to do with, um, you know, more of a, of a commitment to the rule of law, et cetera. There's some critique from the left, like, not, you know, uh, human rights doesn't come up at all in what he's doing um, or, you know, his his stance on refugee policy. Um, but but it, but but. It's really quite interesting that the, both of the voices that 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 Ed mentioned are, are are sort of mainstream voices, and they're 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 coming at Trump from a surprising angle. What do you think about that? Yeah, uh, no, I, I think that's right. And uh, although I think that there there at the moment there are several efforts sort of running in parallel um, to try to kickstart conversations about what would it mean to have a progressive foreign policy? What would it mean to have a left-wing foreign policy? What is that? Um, uh, and they're, you know, they're getting less airtime. Um, but but I, I actually think all of those conversations are, are incredibly important. And as Ed said, um, a little bit overdue. Well, actually, frankly, now that you mention it, it might have been a good conversation to have any time in the last several decades. Like, do we have a foreign policy? What would it look like? Would we know one if we saw one? Since I'm not, it's not, uh, not particularly clear to me that we actually had a coherent foreign policy uh, at any time in the last couple of decades uh, either. Um, you know, Trump has just brought us to extremes of disarray, confusion, impulsivity, contradictions, et cetera. Um, but, but, but no, I, I think they're, they're great conversations. And one of the things that the conversations are highlighting so far, I think, is that there really is not much consensus, particularly within, within the Democratic Party as much as on the Republican Party, that, that there's, there still is this kind of... Um, I don't know what you want to call it, the kind of bipartisan Washington consensus foreign policy 
um, which says, which, which is partly what Trump is reacting against, um, and the left, Bernie Sanders, is also reacting against. You know, and that's the, uh, you know, it's not so much a coherent theory, but but a, a set of practices associated with, you know, advance, you know, rising tide lifts all boats when it comes to free trade. Um, alliances are good. Uh, international law is good as long as it doesn't keep us from doing what we want to do, in which case in those particular circumstances, it's kind of bad. Um, you know, we, it is appropriate for the U S to be a global cop, as long as we don't always have to be a global cop and can kind of wait and be the global cop sort of when we feel like it. Um, uh, but not when we don't, you know, it, it's, it, there, there is a, there is sort of a centrist consensus, which has been challenged on both left and right, but but the, you know, in terms of kind of the the foreign policy community, what our friend Ben Rhodes refers to as the blob, uh, there actually hasn't been a whole lot of debate, and I and I and I do think that if there is a silver lining to the Trump presidency, you know, it will partly be that it is is finally forcing people to have those conversations about, well, wait a minute, you know, is that set of assumptions right? Trump says they're wrong. It turns out a lot of Americans think that they're wrong. Trump is not consistently acting like they're wrong. He's just acting inconsistent because that's what he does. But nevertheless, it's it's a fair set of questions. You know, is is this what we want? Does this make sense? Does it always make sense? Sometimes, never. Uh, so so I, I actually think this is, from that perspective, the silver lining here, it, it's actually a really good thing that those conversations are finally starting to occur. Well, let me take this opportunity to rain on your parade, because the reality <laughs> is the reason Ben Rhodes called the foreign policy establishment the blob is that it was criticizing the Obama administration for also not having a foreign policy. Um, and, uh, you know, we're not going to beat up on Ben Rhodes here uh, because because we uh, never do that. We would never, ever dream of doing that. And it's also much covered terrain. Now, I am uh, informed by, you know, deep state operatives um, that we have managed to connect ourselves to David Sanger. Is that correct? I am indeed. Oh, I was hooray. locked deep in one of Rose's uh, silos and I she hadn't left the key around. It took forever to get What Were you locked there by Kim Jong-un or by Senator Warner or by some other person unknown? Other persons unknown. Very interesting. It could have been could have been Rothkopf. For all I know. No, no. We uh, we want to hear, man. Um, so, <laughs> so so you know, they, I had a, one thought on this interesting conversation you guys were having. We had a moment for progressive foreign policy. It was called the Obama administration before Ben Rhodes called it the blob, uh, inter interdicting. And the critique wasn't the foreign policy; it was the execution. It was that we drew red lines and didn't enforce them. It was that we never really defined a strategy for Afghanistan and Iraq, although on that issue, there's not a whole lot of space between Barack Obama and, um, uh, and the current president, because Donald Trump also wants to get out. It's just neither one of them could figure out how. The, the question went to when and how vigorously does the U.S. intervene? And Trump was willing to intervene uh, in briefly in Syria, but not effectively. Uh, Obama was willing to intervene, but usually covertly, uh, either with drone strikes in the first term or cyber strikes in the second term. But the problem has been defining 
a sort of overarching uh, uh, theory to the case. And that's what got Trump elected. It was a sense that we weren't standing up for the U.S. Well, I think I think that's right. But, Ed, you know, I think one of the things that uh, that we have actually had going on since the end of the Cold War is a national identity crisis. What role should the U.S. play in the world? It was clear for a while that, you know, our role was to counterbalance Soviet Union, to be the leader of the free world, to contain the Soviet Union, to be the champion for liberty and democracy and free markets and so forth, which we did in a variety of ways, some effective, some ineffective, some legal, some illegal, but that was kind of the general consensus. But from the moment that ended, we got into this whole hubbub of it's the end of history. We are we shouldn't be the the, the you know the 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 sheriff anymore. There was that Richard Hospital, the reluctant sheriff. We got into uh, you know the the hyper power, the one polar world, unipolar world. Uh, uh, we got into neo uh, conservative. Uh, uh, you know, foreign policy and over-intervention. I, I think there, you know, there was some kind of an Obama theory, which is don't do what Bush does and 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 try to be a little bit more committed to uh, the rule of law and engaging with everybody and so forth. But there was bad execution. There. But it's actually been 25 years of trying to figure out what the United States' role has, should be in the post-bipolar, post-Cold War world? Do you, do you, I mean, do you think that's right? And if so, the big question is, you know, what's, what, what's different about this era that should, should be driving this conversation? Uh, I think that's absolutely right. That clearly, the, the, the very sort of formidable and concentrated threat of the Soviets, you know, kept... Um, uh, enough of a bipartisan consensus through all the post-war decades, the Cold War decades, um, for there to be a coherent administration to administration foreign policy doctrine, which was essentially always a variation on the Truman Doctrine. Um, that it began, not, not I mean, it, it was extended, extended by Reagan. But uh, the irony of today's moment is that Trump has sort of forced everybody back into that Cold War consensus, which is, um, not everybody, not the progressives, as um, uh, Rosa rightly points out, but but the Obama people, uh, you know, the, the likes of Ben Rhodes and Susan Rice, um, are pretty indistinguishable nowadays from the likes of you know Bill Kristol. Um, we, we're all united in saying uh, there is this thing called Pax Americana. We're not using the word unipolar anymore, but there is this thing called Pax Americana. There is a global network of alliances. Um, America, you know, should have the capacity to uphold uh, the uh, international law just as much um, uh, in the um, South China Sea and the East China Sea as it, you know, does in uh, in the Atlantic. And so Trump has sort of temporarily pushed everybody back into something like, nearly everybody, back into something like a, a Cold War um, consensus. And, you know, I think that is... That is an unrealistic position. The world has changed a great deal in the last 25 years. When the, when the Berlin Wall fell, you know, China was something like 2% of the global economy. It's now, you know, approaching a fifth of the global economy. It is a dramatically different 
and changing world. And the debate we ought to be having is you know, should we be saying that the freedom of somebody living in eastern Ukraine or in Taiwan or in Georgia is the same as, you know, the um, the uh, security of our allies in Europe? Should we be playing a bigger role in the Middle East or be, being an offshore balancer? That there are sort of more profound questions that Trump is completely obliterating the space to to answer that we should be asking and should be debating and we aren't nearly to the extent we we ought to be you know i think but Ed, we're debating it we're debating it among the republicans because you know the last time we had a republican who left the stage here it was george w bush in his second inaugural talking about how the mission of the united states had to be to spread freedom around the world which fit a you know perfectly good sort of traditional Republican view. And what's interesting is it's very hard to get Republicans, even those who said great speech, great speech after that second inaugural, to um, reconcile that with the Donald Trump. It's not our mission at all to spread democracy. We're all about America first. It's the interest, our interest in this transaction and this transaction only. Well, I think, you know, the, the question really becomes, because we know where Trump is, and Trump has kind of, you know, developed this kind of monarchist foreign policy. It's it's not just nativist or ethno-nationalist. It's a little bit Louis the Fourteenth, and, um, you know, you know, that he is the state, right? But but and, and and it's sort of about his relationship. And we may talk about this with regard to North Korea at the very end of this. But Rosa, what's interesting, you know, to me is this core question posed by Ed, which is what's next? What's new? What's different? Because we are in a different era. And, you know, I was having a conversation with a, a very prominent Democrat donor activist yesterday, and we were saying on, on domestic economic policy, the Democrats have essentially been offering the New Deal in one warmed over way or another for about 80 years. And the Republican policies have been a little bit of Eisenhower and a little bit of Reagan, but they haven't really evolved to meet the demands of, you know, the post-industrial world any more than the Democrats have. But I think the same is true internationally. There is no Cold War. The institutions that exist are run down. There is a new power balance. And so questions arise, like, are we entering into a new multipolar reality that's balance of power, more like the world of Metternich in the early part of the 19th century? And if so, does that mean we each operate within self-interest and shifting alliances? Or, or do we take a more communitarian view because everybody's more connected? And if we do take a more communitarian view, how does our view of what that community look like interact with the Chinese view, for example. And so I'm just wondering, as you look at it, what 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 are the new questions we should be asking? David, I think those are exactly the right kinds of questions to be asking. I think that the one thing, here's, here's, here's some things that we know and some things that we don't know, right? One thing that we do know is that the US is a declining power and is likely to continue to be a declining power in, in at least in relative terms and probably in absolute terms. Uh, and that that Whatever we think that the world is going to look like, uh, that's something that I think we do know for a fact, although we don't like to 
admit it because nobody wants, you know, that, that academics admit it. We can admit it in private at think tanks events, but nobody likes to, uh, on the political arena, you know, no politician is going to say, oh, yeah, guys, we're a declining power because we have very fragile uh, national ego and we can't handle saying that. But that's that's a sort of known thing that I think we, we have to start grappling with in a very explicit way. Um, the things that we don't know, you know, we don't know what other. Well, actually, let me add one other thing that we do know. And this was this was uh, something you said in your in your second second question you posed. We also do know that it's not the same world that Metternich inhabited, that that whether you want to think about uh, destructive capacity of weapons or you want to think about uh, climate change or disease flow or cyber, the cyber realm uh, or, or space technologies, that we are all hopelessly interdependent today. And there, there, there clearly cannot be any place left for a completely unilateral self-interest-oriented approach so th those are two knowns. Our, our, our power is declining and we're all interconnected and face many problems that are that are quite urgent, uh, such as climate change, that we cannot solve. No state can solve on its own. I think the the unknowns are, OK, um, what then? You know, does that push you in the direction of saying uh, we need, you know, we need world government? Well, how do we get there from here? Or does that push you in the direction of saying you know, there are some states that are unlikely in the foreseeable future to ever be part of constructive solutions. So we need to band together with the states that could be part of constructive solutions. And at this moment in time, you know, who does that include? You know, is there a way to make China one of those states or is that a lost cause? You know, can you can you have alliances that are based on specific issues, uh, but competition and conflict on other specific issues? I don't think we have any idea. I think that some of the interesting efforts that are beginning to go on that involve sort of, you know, future scenarios trying to play out, you know, okay, here are six different directions things could go in and, and how should, you know, what would be the best positioning for us now if you think any one of these is possible? How do we assess which one is most likely? So I, so I, I partly, you know, for all that I have been one of the people who has, uh, you know, criticized the Obama administration as well for lack of a coherent foreign policy approach. You know, to be fair, it's 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 just hard. You know, and anybody who says, oh, it's simple, you know, I've got a whole theory of the world and the future and all we need to do is A, B, C or D uh, is is pretty delusional. Uh, but the fact that it is extremely hard doesn't mean I think I think those conversations uh, take on an increased urgency at the moment. I take that very personally. And if anybody does want to know how to do it, please call me directly. <laughs> You'll give them the answer. And I will provide. Oh, look, I think very delusional is the space that we here at Deep State <laughs> we Radio occupy. particularly <laughs> occupy. You know? No, no, we do we do occupy it. But, you know, David, even in, in there are areas where we are not delusional. And frankly, a lot of it has to do with uh, some of the good work you've been doing by exploring the new nature of power. Because it's interesting, picking up on what Rose's point is, Power has changed, and connectivity has changed, and connectivity has changed the nature of power, as in the area of cyber, which you've written about um, uh, so well in your magnificent book, The Perfect Weapon, available at bookstores everywhere. <laughs> um, but, 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 you know, my check is in the mail to you, David. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, uh, but, but my 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 question is, you know, based on that, based on your immersing yourself in next generation power, how does that change your view, or how does it 
change your sense of what the questions are. And do you see anybody out there in the world in other countries um, who may be getting this ahead of us? Well, the main one that obviously, and this is you know no revelation, is that China has moved from stealing and copying our technology and those of others to serious innovation. You're up and talk to people in the intelligence agencies or you know Capitol Hill or whatever. All that they are worried about with the Chinese is no longer the theft of stuff from us, but are they getting ahead in 5G technology, which is what will be connecting, you know, all of our uh, of our internet connections, our phone connections, and so forth, a few years out. Are they ahead in space, which was part of President Trump's, uh, I think, uh, uh, somewhat overwrought uh, desire to put together a space force? Are they getting ahead in uh, quantum computing and, you know, so forth and so on. So that's all on the technological side. And there, it's actually the one area where I don't think we necessarily have to be concerned that we are losing status, because I think every time we've been in that, we've managed to go pull out ahead. That doesn't mean we will again the next time. But that's one area, and it's outside government control. Where Rose is absolutely right is that in the traditional measures of power, we are relatively going to be a lesser part of the equation. And oddly enough, the America first president is pushing us more in that direction, because every time he says, this isn't my problem, I don't want to intervene in this, I don't want to spend uh, blood and treasure in this, I don't want to spend money on this problem, it's not as if the problem is just going to go away. It's going to create a vacuum and someone will fit it, fill it, whether it's the Russians in Syria or it's the Chinese in, you know, Latin America or or all of that. And we don't what bothers me the most about our political discourse right now is not only are we sort of wrapped up in our own internal issues, but when we do discuss these relative power questions, we're doing it the wrong way. Our solution is to spend 10% more on the Pentagon budget buying um, equipment that would would really set you up to win the Vietnam War, but not invest in the technologies that we're worried about the most. And that's, that's my biggest concern, that where the government does step in here, it's not really thinking about future. It's thinking about either current interests or past interests. Well, Ed, you know, that's a really, really thoughtful point. And I actually think this has been a very thoughtful conversation because it really sort of suggests that, you know, all foreign policy grows from domestic policy. You only have the ability to intervene or 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 influence affairs overseas to the extent to which you have the resources, capability to do that, and that comes from whether your economy is working, your people are vibrant, your systems holding together, uh, and and so forth. Uh, and in fact, you know, you know, it was a it was a British approach to you know mercantile economics that you know led to you know the growth of empire, um, and uh, it. You know, in, in in that instance, the national economy and the international economy were completely interrelated. And, you know, as Donald Trump is finding out, that's true, obviously, today, even more so. 
uh, and that you know you can play a trade war and sort of 1930s policies, um, but the people who pay for tariffs on China are Americans. Um, and so I'm wondering to what extent our failings to sort of get our arms around our domestic policy lead to failings to understand what is possible for us in international policy. Uh, and I think that's a good, it's a very complex question. Uh, I mean, clearly, you, you know, ever since the Cold War, which you raised earlier, um, in one form or another, um, every president, even Bush before 9-11, campaigned on the foreign policy begins at home. Um, and now we're pivoting to America. Uh, we've got America first now on steroids. But, you know, the idea that post-Cold War, now we've got to fix our own problems here, has actually been a, 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 a continuous theme for the last quarter of, of a century. Um, and what we've been lacking is any successful execution um, of that. There's been brilliant, extraordinary, uh, quintessentially American innovation coming out of Silicon Valley and um, slightly less um, wonderful innovation coming out of um, uh, Wall Street. Um, but the uh, brokenness of Washington has just become more apparent with each successive presidency. So, um, you know, the Democrats might have been talking about the New Deal for 80 years, but apart from LBJ's sort of expansion of it into the, into, uh, the great Sarty and, and Clinton's sort of accommodation of it to Reaganism, there's been no real good centrist, center-left reimagining of the American economy. And um, we're getting further away, um, you know, from 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 that under the Trump administration. Um, so I don't see, I think it was Walter Lippmann who talked about, you know, matching your foreign policy means with your ends and there being a, a deficit. I don't see that deficit between America's foreign policy um, aspirations um, and America's means to fulfill those aspirations. Um, I don't see that deficit being narrowed. Uh, uh, Trump is sort of off on a completely different conversation about, you know, transactional foreign policy, but I don't see the rest of the foreign policy community, the, the, the blob, if you like, you know, asking those questions that Thomas Wright and Peter Beinart were asking in their piece is that, you know, do we, if we don't have the means to defend Taiwan, then should we pretend that is still our policy? Because it's it's you know we're gonna we're gonna look more and more paper tigerish as China gets more and more uh, powerful and and uh, attains more and more a symmetry symmetry um, with American uh, military technology in the South China Sea and beyond. And the same you know question applies slightly less um, slightly less um, urgently in, in terms of Russia's near abroad. If we cannot uphold those principles, why are we pretending we can? Ed, is the question, can we do it, or do we even have any political well, will? Both, well, both, both questions. No. Both questions are very, uh, you know, they're separate questions, and both are equally important. Look, we've only got uh, literally three minutes left here with this uh, podcast, and uh, I, I want to do a little bit of sort of current news just because we've got David here, and David started the week with a very thoughtful uh, piece about North Korea and sort of how the North Koreans are going about, um, you know, sort of heading on the tack of, of, of sort of quietly pursuing their nuclear program while, you know, giving lip service to, to other kinds of diplomatic initiatives. 
Uh, in the past 24 hours, there have been meetings between the North Koreans and the South Koreans. There have been a number of, of, of agreements signed which speak of peace, speak of some modest North Korean concessions, but everything is based on the notion of reciprocalness, which is a, a Trumpian notion, but but essentially the North Koreans are saying, well, the U.S. is going to have to give up X or the U.S. and South Korea is going to have to give up X in order for us to give up Y. And so there's a bit of a debate about whether something really big was happening there and whether the U.S. is actually going to step up and do what's asked. And I just, before we go, because you follow this so closely, David, I was wondering what your take is on these latest developments. Well, look, every all the body language was good between uh, President Moon and President Kim. President Kim agreed to go to Seoul. That's never happened with a North Korean um, leader before. Uh, I hope he likes neon because he's about to see more of it than he's ever seen in his life. Um, and uh, the agreements, as you said, spoke of peace and this and that. And then President Kim, or Chairman Kim, as this administration likes to call him, uh, agreed once again to dismantle two facilities that he had already told uh, President Trump he was going to dismantle when they were in Singapore and has partially dismantled them. Uh, and he held out the possibility that he would begin to dismantle the decrepit young beyond complex that has long been the center of uh, the nuclear program. What didn't he talk about giving up? Any of his 20 to 60 nuclear weapons, any of his missiles, any of the fuel they've already produced for all of those. So um, if the goal here is reduce the threat by making everybody feel better about each other, we're doing pretty good. If the goal here is actually to denuclearize North Korea, what they used to call CVID, complete, verifiable, uh, irreversible uh, denuclearization, we're not very far down the line. Now, Mike Pompeo said today that he thought they would get to that point around the beginning of 2021, which would be, of course, the end of the <laughs> Trump term. Uh, that's a little bit different from John Bolton's. They only need a year to turn all of this stuff in, and then we'll move on from there. Uh, and I think what's happening is the administration is coming to the reality that everybody else has, which is the North Koreans can't be forced to do this any faster than they want to. And, of course, the real reality is they'll probably never give up everything. And even if they did, you would never be certain it was everything. Uh, excellent summary. Rosa, I would like to turn to you for the last word here. Uh, and I sort of dare you to go where you know <laughs> this this obviously takes us. But do you see any direct connection between the lack of available good bagels in Washington and the lack of available good foreign policy? Well, as the bagel is round and symbolizes the world, yet the world with a tragic hole in its middle, so too do we see a missing middle to American foreign policy. And if only we could get our bagels, well, this isn't really going anywhere, David. Um, I think no, I'll stop now. It was going. It reminds me <laughs> of the joke. Reminds me of the joke that Ed told before we started about Salman Rushdie. <laughs> oh, oh, Ed, and please tell us the joke that you told before we started about Salman Rushdie. Uh, this is this is an oldish joke that um, was circulating after he was banned um, in Bombay by Hindu nationalists for a, a book that offended Hindus. 
um, you know, following, of course, uh, the one that um, was uh, Muslims. Um, Muslims. And the joke was, uh, have you heard he's got a new book coming out? It's called Buddha, You Fat Bastard. <laughs> Yeah, I you know that's th- the first time I've ever heard Ed Luce tell a clean joke. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I uh, retweet does not imply endorsement. I think. For the, well, uh, I was able to entertain my family by telling a wide variety of sophisticated inside the Beltway jokes at our last family gathering. You'd probably like to hear one. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Please. What's brown and sticky? Um. A stick. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we wow. had a lot of fun. We had a good time. Wow, honey on it. I thought we were. Does, I thought we were going to move upscale here to what? Why a bagel looks like the top of one of Rose's favorite silos that she's. Well, I can tell you a joke about the you know one of the great luminaries of the Cold War and bagels. Would you like to hear that joke? Yes. Um, this is from the Reagan administration, and Ronald Reagan is our listeners know his last name is spelled r-e-a-g-a-n and so the joke from the reagan presidency is that uh, there's a a tourist and he's standing in front of the white house during the reagan presidency and he he stops a guy who's walking by uh walking his dog and he says you know oh it's so great to be here at the white house where the president is but i just have this one question uh you know i'm a, I'm a foreign tourist president president his last name is spelled R-E-A-G-A-N. Now, how does he pronounce it? Does he pronounce that Regan or Reagan? And the American walking his dog says, oh, uh, President Reagan. And the tourist says, oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. He says, what kind of dog do you have? And the guy says, a bagel. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I can can tell you a joke about Parson Weems. That's a character I'm very familiar with. Yeah. (laughs) Wait a minute, Ed. I think. (laughs) Maybe I can't. Maybe I can't. Yeah. Um, gosh, well, you know, I'm tempted to say we need to get a rim shot machine here in the Deep State Studios. Uh, and Ian, I hope you'll get right on that. Um, but uh, I guess I'll just end by saying, you know, we'll show ourselves out. Uh, thanks very, <laughs> thanks, thanks very much to Rosa and to Ed and to David, and not to bury the lead, but, but as this podcast goes live, so too will go live deepstateradionetwork.com. And, you know, bear with us. This is sort of the early stages of the launch of a site that is going to have a lot more features on it over the coming months and weeks. But starting tomorrow, Thursday, or today, Thursday, when you're listening to this, or yesterday, Thursday, because you're a day behind, um, if you go to www deepstateradionetwork.com, you can find all of the podcasts that we've done. Transcripts of the podcasts will be there and compiled. We will have some new features, um, including uh, some blog features. We will have uh, a brief little rants and explainers, which are uh, sort of audio features that'll be shorter and 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 kind of punchy, in-depth looks at particular things. Some of these will be available to everybody. Some of these will be available to members. We're going to have a feed, a Twitter feed that is following just the folks that have been on Deep State Radio. We are going to have uh, lists of some of the books that we've been reading. We are going to have, uh, starting uh, next week, a daily brief coming out 
uh, summarizing news from the insider perspective, not the mainstream media, but from sort of small specialized deep state media that's covering this stuff uh, with some analysis on top of that. Uh, some of you will be most happy that there will be a deep state swag store, which will allow you to get all sorts of branded deep state products from mugs and T-shirts and sweatshirts and water bottles to Faraday, um, you know, holders for your phone. So, you know, people can't listen in on your phone conversations to challenge coins, uh, you know, carved from mighty redwood trees and all sorts of things. And and you'll be able, not really from redwood trees, folks, but you get the idea. But uh, there will be all of this. Uh, and of course, there'll be the ability uh, to sign up. And there are two levels of membership, both of which help us, you know, that you don't hear ads on this. Uh, we've been doing this on a kind of pro bono basis for, for the past uh, 15 months. And uh, uh, what we'd like to do is we'd like to have the community we serve support us in some small way. This suggests some ways you can do that and get the benefit of exclusive content for members, access to live events that we're going to do, discounts. Uh, and there's even ways to get membership simply by getting other people to sign up as members. So strongly urge you beg you, implore you, go to www.deepstateradionetwork.com, sign in, take a look, watch week to week as we start adding in video and other new kinds of features and interactive features, suggest new features to us, and by all means, sign up, become a member of the Deep State, uh, get the all the benefits that go with being a member of the Deep State, um, uh, including standing up for, uh, you know, America. Uh, hey, David, can I ask a philosophical question that our our listeners could probably maybe think about answering in the next week or two? If, in fact, the deep state has its own website and people sign up for membership with their names and so forth, is it still really the deep state? It It, it is actually a much deeper state. And... <laughs> and and the power only grows. The power of the deep state to do good only grows from all of this. And we'll, of course, protect your identities furiously. We're using all the latest encryption technology. Even David Sanger, in his hackatorium, in his basement of his barn in, Ver in Vermont, will not be able to get the secret information about each and every one of you. Um, and because that's what David does when he's in Vermont. He, he hacks like crazy. Um, in any event, thank you, David. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Rosa. And we look forward to joining all of you next week and throughout each week with rants, briefs and debriefs, um, uh, daily briefs, um, and all the new uh, products and materials we're launching. Thank you very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.